0: Hi, everybody. Stefan Wallin from Freedom, Maine Radio. Hope you're doing well. Back with a good friend, Vox Day. He is a multiple-time Hugo Award nominee who writes epic fantasy, as well as nonfiction, including Social Justice Warriors Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police, and Cuxervative, How, Quote, Conservatives Betrayed America. He's also a professional game designer and maintains a pair of popular blogs, Vox Populi and Alpha Game. He is also the lead designer of next-generation Wikipedia replacement InfoGalactic and also runs Castalia House Publishing most recently, and most importantly, he has released his Collected Columns, Volume 1, Innocence and Intellect, 2001 to 2005. We'll put the links to all of this below. Uh, Vox, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: It is always good to chat with you, although I have to admit, this is the first time you've ever given me homework.
0: Well, yes, yeah, so we're going to talk about Crime and Punishment, the greatest novel, in my view, to come out of the 19th century, Um unless you like your things shorter, in which case uh, Tegenya's Fathers and Sons is good, which I actually adapted into a play uh, when I was in theatre school and uh, ran uh, for a summer in Toronto. But um yes, yeah, so you've read the book since we last... Talked, and uh, we're going to assume that people have some knowledge of the book. I don't want to sort of give people the run through. And even if you've never read the book, this is going to be a great chat anyway. So, what was your impression? What were your thoughts on the book?
1: Well, you know, I'd read the book before. This was not my first time reading it. And what really struck me this time was that I was slightly, very slightly less impressed with it this time than I was back when I'd read it in, I think I'd read it twice before, once in high school and another time, either in college or, or recently, after, you know, right after graduating. And I was, I was kind of wondering why that was. And what I realized was that I'm now reading it somewhat with, a, with the eye of an editor. Mm. And so it was interesting to me that um, I was able this time to pick up the fact that it was written uh, as more as a serial rather than as a as a uh, a you know, coherent novel structure oh he had um, a terrible even, methodology
0: for writing books I mean he'd just start and keep going he would just pace around and dictate uh, sometimes, so it was not uh, often well stitched together
1: yeah and, and that was what was was interesting to me is that um you know I, I'm reading this, and here this is one of the the cl- great novels of of h- human literature I mean it, it absolutely is, and yet uh its greatness does not derive from being a utter masterpiece of literary style um of plot or of structure i mean there's there's a lot of um people that go into the you know the, the, the sort of people that like to break down the literary structure of a book and look for significance in every single word you know one, one thing that you'll see uh, sjw's love to do is they'll, they'll talk about how not a single word is wasted you know they, they like to pretend that that every single word in a book is is chock full of meaning and they want to perform exegesis on everything and you know the fact that 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 a shirt is blue is significant versus a ring being yellow, and all this sort of thing and the fact of the matter is, and speaking as a someone who's both a, a an author and an editor, um, I think that the vast majority of the time those ideas and those claims are utter nonsense. <laughs>
0: And- well, I mean, and of course, he jammed kind of two stories together because he was working on a book called The Drunkard, which survives as the character of Marmaladov and, and his family and so on, a terrifying portrayal of alcohol addiction, something I've never really understood. Like heroin addiction, I've never tried heroin, of course, but I hear it's fantastic. I've had a couple of drinks – um, I feel I feel kind of nauseous, and I want to go to sleep. So I really, really don't understand it. But it's a really powerful portrayal, and of course, Dostoevsky himself had a very addictive personality. Ended up addicted to gambling and and other things, and so on. So he had this story called The Drunken, which he kind of crashed into Crime and Punishment. So the idea that this is somehow all thought out ahead of time in the sort of thirteen year odyssey of Atlas Shrugged, to me is um, well, doesn't doesn't accord with how it was developed at all.
1: But I think it's also testimony to to the difference between. Uh, a very talented writer and the less talented writers. I mean, I see this all the time. Um, You know, there's nothing that makes you want to quit writing, like seeing how well and how much a talented writer can turn out in a very short period of time. Um, I think the, the idea that the greatness of a work like crime and punishment somehow has something to do with how, Carefully plotted, or or how how um, minutely detailed uh, everything was planned out is actually lesser writers trying to convince themselves that they can be great.
0: A few more yeah, flowcharts, and I'm a genius, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah, it, exactly. And and so I mean, the, I'll I'll give you an example. Um, the we, we published a, a book called Swan Night Sun by John C. Wright. And John C. Wright is one of those, you know, he, he's, a, he's a great writer, not necessarily in the Dostoevsky sense, but just in the sense of he's just on that level that, that most of us lesser writers can't, simply cannot do. And the reason that I know this is because he, he turned in the book and I was reading it and I, I called him up. I said, you know, the first chapter, I think it sucks. It, it's not interesting. Um, you know, you've got this guy sitting in a room talking to a bird and nothing, literally nothing happens. Um, I said, in, in fact, the, the guy, it actually makes you dislike the protagonist. I said, so, you know, do something different. I said, I'd like to see something a little bit more ominous, something that creates a, a, a sort of, uh, some sort of sense of foreboding, uh, because there's some, you know, real tension and dark stuff that is to come. And he says, uh, I said, you know, I should look at dark is rising by Susan Cooper, something kind of like that. He's like, Okay. And I'm thinking I'm going to get something you know, in a week or two. <laughs> and literally, the next day, there's this new first chapter. It's called The 13th Hour. And it, it conceives of this, this whole uh, 13th hour that humanity is not conscious of, but we're, we're all unconscious and, uh, and ca- caught under an elven spell. And and the humans are going out sleepwalking, going over to the, the the place where the elves receive their tribute, and and this this kid is awake and he can see it, and I mean it's just exceptionally creepy, and and this is just a wonderful introduction. It's so well written, and I know the guy did it in twelve hours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, this is what reminds me, uh, in the movie American Psycho, Willem Dafoe plays uh, – because we're sort of slowly circling our way back to the Bofiri character in Crime and Punishment. But Willem Dafoe, who's a great actor, uh, portrays a, a sort of guy who's after the this sort of serial killer. And when I was in theater school, you know, you read your Uta Hagen and, and your Stanislavski and your method acting and all this preparation and this and that and the other. And I remember – reading an interview with the director who said, you know, I couldn't figure out how to play the scene where this guy first confronts uh, the the potential serial killer. So I said, okay, come in like you know for sure that he did it. Okay, come in like you have no idea whether he did it. Now come in like it's just raining. Now come in and he just would do the take differently and every take was perfect. And it's like, sorry, that's just a huge amount of talent that no amount of preparation <laughs> is going to allow you to, to reproduce. So the book was written, I think 18 um late 1850s, early 1860s. Now, the central idea or the central argument goes something like this. After the example of Napoleon, Napoleon and Darwin, two huge Forces in 19th century for, uh, thought. Napoleon, because he was just this general in the French army, he conducted a, a massacre in Paris. Uh, he abandoned an entire army uh, in Egypt. And uh, he also, of course, lost half a million men invading Russia, which seems to be a disastrous habit of Western Europeans over history. And uh, he became emperor, re- rewrote uh, France's uh, penal code and so on, and spent most of his career invading just about every piece of land that he could lay his, his eyes and his scimitars on. And this was just an act of will. This was just an act of will. And – he was a criminal in many ways. He broke laws. He, he killed huge numbers of people. He rewrote the map, and he became sort of a great man. So that combination of what was called the Ubermensch or the Superman or the man who uh, steps over, right? In in Russian, uh, crime is also synonymous with the word stepping over something. Can you step over ordinary human morality, legal morality, Christian morality? Can you just step over it as so many people throughout history who are castigated as criminals, in their lives and often end up with bronze statues and they end up on postage stamps after their deaths. And so if you combine the will to power that Napoleon and others represented with this Darwinian explosion, the the course of the Darwinian books uh, um, on natural selection and evolution were published some few years before Crime and Punishment, wherein this bland animalistic striving for domination, which is the sort of pyramid of Um, the animal kingdom as a whole, the will to power over political structures combined with the scrubbing of the soul and of divine commandments and the looking at the sort of bare forked animal triumphing and, and eating and hunting and screwing and reproducing and so on gave people a very, very tremulous sense of a bare, amoral universe of striving for power. Of course, Nietzsche was... Uh, talking about this uh, a lot. But Nietzsche, of course, uh, was after Dostoevsky. uh, And uh, I know Nietzsche found out about Dostoevsky later in Nietzsche's life, a couple of years before he went crazy, so didn't have much influence. Although, to be fair, Nietzsche did say that Dostoevsky was the only psychologist he had anything to learn from. But um, I think this question of, can you overstep ordinary, bland, historical moral imperatives when you have a universe scrubbed of divine commandments, was terrifying and, and it, it's terrifying not just because it's about one crazy guy in St. Petersburg, but also because as he dreams in the end, what if everyone takes this perspective? What if everyone decides to step over morality? What if everyone tries to will their own growth to, to power and dominance, what happens to society then? And of course, the 20th century, I think, was one of the dominoes that fell on the face, at least of Western European humanity as a result of this kind of emptying out of the moral imperatives of the universe.
1: Well, I think that one thing we've, we've seen is that moralities have a certain inertia to them. It's, it, it's one thing to talk about the stepping over in theory, it's another thing to actually do it. And and furthermore, when you decide that morality is is something that is merely a, a social construct or or you know a historical artifact or or however else you want to dismiss it, what you find, and this is actually one thing that I think both Dostoevsky and Nietzsche missed, is that. Morality is not the only target of that deconstruction. I mean, what we've seen is that everything becomes subject to that. The concept of the nation, the concept of of states, the concept of uh, sexual of, of, of sexual gender, the concept of you know what is and what is not human. All of all of these things are suddenly. Up for deconstruction. I think that that is a is a development that even the uh, the best minds of that century did not, and obviously could not have foreseen. Um, You know, they they were focused very much more on the the religious aspects of it. You know, there's so much. um, It's so common when you talk to uh, you know people in college or or you know smart folks that are, are being tempted to transgress and are being tempted to dismiss those and test those limits. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> so much of that tends to come down to a very simple and very focused uh, perspective on what they happen to want that, uh, that they need to transgress to get. You know, so for, for most of us, it tends to involve uh, having sex in in some way that that morality or tradition would frown upon. Um, but but there are also other things. In Napoleon's case, it was you know he wanted to conquer Europe. Um, it was the national it was the whole national boundaries thing. He had a little trouble with. Um, but I, I think it's interesting that there's no limit to that deconstructive process, and, and so we get to the point where even the most basic Aristotelian logic, you know, A cannot be not A. The, the, you know, was it law of exclu- exclusion? Um, suddenly, even that gets deconstructed. And so we literally lose our ability to reason. We lose our ability to do science. We lose our ability to even communicate effectively with other human beings because suddenly is no longer necessarily means is. And so I I think that, that the, the, the brilliance of crime and punishment is it shows us that first fatal step towards, um, yeah, I mean, towards whatever you want to call it. I mean, I don't even think that nihilism, the, the nihilism that, that people complained of, you know, and, and the, that the um, the radicals wanted to disavow they, you know they said that his his anarchism Dostoevsky's anarchism the portrayal there is is not what we mean by it you know the nihilism there is not what we mean by it which no. is the usual dodge but but the but the, to me the interesting thing is that that he was one of the first to understand the direction that that process would lead
0: and that it becomes Cowardice to obey traditional, sensible, moral rules. This, to me, is is one of the fascinating. So, the very brief setup for the story is that Raskolnikov is a student and uh, he's he's run out of money because his family's poor. And there's this vicious, nasty, parasitical, ugly, greasy-haired old woman who's a pawnbroker. Right? She takes goods from desperate people and gives them a little bit of money, and if they don't pay her back. She gets to keep the goods. She's considered parasitical. And she has this kind of idiot sister who is gentle and nice and sweet and all that. And um, Raskolnikov, of course, is possessed by the idea. And the idea comes out of ideology. The idea comes out of a essay that he writes, which is that... Um, a man wills and a man takes, and all of these moral rules are basically set up for cowards to obey their betters. You're either a master or you are a slave. You are either an übermensch or an untermensch, right? You're above uh, rules and you make your own rules and you have the will to power and you glory uh, in all that you can take and possess in the world, or you obey these silly little rules and, and that are just set up to, to weed the strong from the weak and so on. And he says, well, why not just kill this old woman and take her money so that I can go and complete my education so that I can save my sister from a bad marriage so that I can enrich my family and I'm going to take her money which she's hoarding and keeping in her grim little pawn shop and I'm going to release it and I'm going to spend it and I'm going to help people I'm going to save people I'm going to do all this good with this money which is kind of bound up in this nasty old vermin's uh, lockbox under her bed and so on but then he sleeps and he decides to do it. Well, actually right before. And the, the dreams, dreams are fascinating in Dostoevsky. And I, they're, they're described so vividly. I can't help Vox but think that he must have had these dreams. These are not dreams <laughs> that you make up. Right. But the dream of the horse beating right before he's going to go and commit the murder. He has, he sort of has spends his time crawled up like a little corner spider in this room that's barely a cupboard on the fifth floor of some rickety old house. And he owes all this money to the landlady and, and avoiding her and, and terrified and frustrated. And ugh. anyway, he has this dream, do you, I'm sure you because you've just read it. It's a, it's a really terrifying, powerful dream that I thought was going to have him not do the murder.
1: Well, it's, it's the dream is horrific. Um And, and in some ways, to modern sensibilities it's it's probably even more shocking because it's it's violence directed at an animal hmm. um, and but but I think the important thing of just just to quickly describe the dream basically he's a child and he's watching a a, a drunken man uh essentially mistreat a a horse by causing it to to drag more weight than it it's capable of and then uh, in his drunken anger at its inability to do the impossible, he then more or less beats it to death, and um, and it's it's you know it's it's tragic, it's horrific. Um, the the young uh, Raskolnikov, Roskel- um, is is horrified by this, and and you know is weeping and and begging the man to stop and all that sort of thing. But but I think one element that that a lot of a lot of readers. Tend to miss about that is that it is actually an emotional argument. The dream is a emotional rhetorical argument against the concept of private property. You know, several times in the course of the beating, the man, uh, you know, because pe- people are some some of the people are egging him on, and others are are begging him to stop. And you know, they say, you know, you'll 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 kill the poor beast. And he keeps saying it's it's my property, it's mine to do what I want. And so I saw the dream as as both um, presaging his uh, his transformation into the brutish killer, but I also saw the dream as a justification, his emotional justification for the killing, because you know the 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 woman's right to her property is being questioned because if, if it is wrong for the man to treat his property any way that he wants, if, if you know the, the, the beating to death of the horse creates in the reader's mind, the idea that someone should be able to stop him and take his property away and do something more useful with it than just, you know, killing it. And so, um, so it's actually a, a rather intentional or not. It's a rather brilliant device that serves as a emotional rationalization and justification for the eventual crime.
0: And this distance between his heartbreaking sensitivity as a child, that he's crying, and his father's like, "Oh, I'm sorry, you have to see this." And his Raskolnikov's incredible sensitivity, almost an unbearable sensitivity as a child. And of course, remember, I mean, the Russia at the time was largely running on basic slavery, and it was like four or 5% of the population was literate. And so there was a lot of drunkenness, a lot of brutality, a lot of, of violence, um, just, just astonishing and, and terrifying stuff. And his sensitivity as a child, where he's heartbroken over the maltreatment of the horse, and I remember the whipping the horse across the eyes, you know, just stuff that makes you just flinch at a physical level. But then when he goes through university and he's exposed to these new ideas, he gets and again we've seen this a lot, you know, in social justice warriors your book and so on and other you've got sensitive nice people in a lot of ways somehow get exposed to a kind of toxic ideology and it really transforms them. And and you can see pictures of this. Uh, you can we'll we'll put a link to some below, but if you've not seen the pictures they're worth looking at and it's uh, women and occasionally men, but it's women before they go into social justice warrior college indoctrination hell. Pictures before and pictures after uh, they've gone through this kind of indoctrination. And to me, this shows the sensitivity that can be corrupted by a whole set of really terrible ideas. And how far he goes from a child who is, is weeping and, and heartbroken over the maltreatment of a horse to a man who can basically club two women to death. Why? Because he's been exposed to and has generated within himself particular ideas, and the power of ideas to kill compassion is truly astounding, and and I think has always been underestimated in the modern world.
1: I think it's partly that, but you know, one another thing that really struck me upon rereading the book, um, you know, for the first time in twenty years or whatever it's been, uh, was that. Dostoevsky did an excellent job of describing the or creating a character that very much fit what I call the gamma um, social sexuality. Um, again, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation. R- Raskolnikov. Rascal- Raskolnikov is how I've heard it pronounced. Okay. R- Raskolnikov. Um, so Raskolnikov very much has a alarmingly familiar gamma-slash-SJW thought process that is indicated in the book. Um, It's particularly noticeable in his negative reaction to his sister's suitor, Um, and I'm not talking about when he actually meets the guy. When he actually meets the guy, the guy does manage to come off in a a bad way, and of course later he he, um, comes off even worse. But, um, but when he hasn't even met the guy and he's just – all he knows is that this is somebody who's fairly successful and is offering his sister a way out, um, just all the negative uh, – the, the, the negativity and the, the hatred of the more successful um, is, is – it was something that really struck me this time in a way that it hadn't before. You know, you, you, you can tell just from that. That, you know, here is a, a young man who is not successful with women um, and is, is – and actually you, actually, you do see it. He's very awkward. He's kind of awkward and creepy, even when he's trying to white knight and save the drunken prostitute. And, and that's also, you know, if you think about it, that's also a very gamma activity to attempt to interfere with the sexual relations of the more successful men. You know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, you know, the the funny thing is that he can't admit to himself that he too is attracted to the girl. I mean, think about it. Why is he following her in order to stop this guy and all that sort of stuff? It's because obviously he's attracted to her too, but he, he can't even admit that to himself. He just has to play the role of the white knight. And of course, fruitlessly, as we know, because the, the police, you know, end up not getting involved and so forth. But, um, so to me, it was uh, – I actually see in his character, in that part, someone who's a bit of a proto-SJW and, and, and is going through some of those thought processes, obviously, to, to an ex- a level that we hope most of the, the college kids that you're describing don't. <laughs> well, but, it you know, is
0: remarkable, of course, that he's so concerned with exploitation. Um, and, and, of course, this is a, a, a trite. I could say a sort of cliche of the social justice warrior, the leftist stuff, very, very concerned with with exploitation. Uh, the fact that, of course, they're in university because the government is taxing poorer people in general who aren't going to, going to university and giving them the money to go to university, they don't particularly view as exploitation, but some corporation that's, you know, working with some – workers well that's just real exploitation and Lucian, the 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 woman who's uh, sorry the man who's uh, in pursuit of raskolnikov's uh, sister's hand yeah is a, a bit of a shallow guy and all that but it's a way out that doesn't involve killing someone and and his negative his rage and his hostility towards a successful man because he he had a way of continuing on in college he just would have had to take on more um uh, he, if, if he had taught people more, if he'd sort of done his tutoring and so on, he'd have had enough right. money to sort of struggle along. But he didn't want to do that because of the vanity, the vanity. He just believes that he deserves more. He's owed more. And if the universe isn't going to provide it to him, he's damn well going to go out and get it himself. And he believes that he will be able to overcome any residual what they would say bourgeois sentimentality, bourgeois morality, this sort of old school uh, orthodox or Christian kind of um, regret or guilt about the death and um, that he is not able to achieve. And I think that is, is fascinating. There's a bit, I, I sort of wrote it down and I remember it the very, very first time that uh, I read it um, where he has this idea that he's going to be like um, Napoleon. He's going to be one of these um, great uh, men who who does whatever they want to, to achieve their power. And it's the way that he actually ends up committing the crime is so sort of vile for him that uh, he has a description of it. And let me just find it here. Oh, yes, here we go. Here we go. Ugh. Um. He said, um, no, those men are not made so. The real master to whom all is permitted storms Toulon, makes a massacre in Paris, forgets an army in Egypt, wastes half a million men in the Moscow expedition, and gets off with a jest at Vilna. And altars are set up to him after his death, and so all is permitted. No, such people, it seems, are not of flesh, but of bronze, right? So he's talking about how he's enraged, and this is part of the rage of the, quote, successful. Napoleon gets to do all of these incredibly insane, murderous things, destroys countries, half a million men he leaves to, to freeze to death in Russia, and he's fine. And then he says, one sudden irrelevant idea almost made him laugh. Napoleon, the pyramids, Waterloo, and a wretched, skinny old woman, a pawnbroker with a red trunk under her bed. It's a nice hash for this policeman to digest. How can they digest it? It's too inartistic. A Napoleon creep under an old woman's bed. Ugh, how loathsome. And that, to me, is truly an astounding moment. I remember reading that going, because he he gets... His prose gets inside you like spiders being released in your bone marrow, like he gives you bone shivers deep, deep in the darkness. And this idea that Napoleon is off there conquering the world, and he's crawling around under an old woman's bed with blood all around him, trying to ratchet out her savings in a tin box. I mean, this comparison, the artisticness of it, this artistic nature, I find a lot of people in my life, uh, when I was young in particular, paralyzed by a feeling that they could not create the image of what they wanted in the way that they wanted, and that prevented them from moving forward. They had an image of themselves as glorious, and they weren't willing to do the necessary work to get there. You know, everybody wants the Oscar, nobody wants to do summer stock. Uh, and I think that narcissism and belief that you should be granted what you want without having to climb the steps to get to the top floor, um, I think is is really powerful. And there's no sense in my mind that, that napoleon would ever have thought like that although he wanted to be like napoleon
1: well i, th- I think the thing that's h- so hard for a lot of people is that you know life is unfair and people do get people undeserving people do get handed opportunities and successes um and it just doesn't seem fair you know and and I'm sympathetic to, to people who feel that way, um, you know, because there, there's there there is no equality in that sense. There is no fairness in that sense. But the reality is is that the solution to it is not going to be found in trying to create your own unfairness and trying to create you know t- t- committing evil to rectify those situations is is not going to solve anything. And and it is that the, the, the section that you're describing nicely illustrates the utter absurdity of the dichotomy or of the huge gap between the way that these very vain, self-serving, self-justifying people see themselves and the grubbiness of their actions. And, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know, if, if you've got some if you've got if you've got some guy who is you know uh trying to groom a uh underage girl online chances are pretty good that he thinks of himself as as a great seducer <laughs> <laughs> you know um and and then you know it, the, the situation just looks absolutely ridiculous you know, you've got um you've got you know grubby teenage couples that fancy themselves Romeo and Juliet. I mean, it's, it's uh, the, the gap between who we are and how we want to view ourselves can be, you know, absurd at times. It, it, and, and I think Dostoevsky does an excellent job of illustrating that the absurdity of that gap um, in that scene. And it reminds me, actually, of one of the most important things I ever heard someone say it to someone else Uh, when I was in college and a a woman was talking to a grad student that was a friend of mine and the woman said um, I have all these great ideas in my head Um, I just I I just can't seem to get them out (laughs) and the grad student very coldly said that's just a feeling those ideas don't actually exist. <laughs> you, you don't know that they exist until you are able to articulate them either verbally or on paper. And, and, and that's the thing, that the greatness that so many of these people feel. It's kind of like uh, Lena Dunham in Girls, where she, uh, there's, I've never seen the show, but the, the ad, there's an ad where she talks about, I, I think I might be the voice of my generation. Well, you know, we certainly hope to God that she isn't. (laughs) (laughs) But but the point is that it is very common, especially for the not terribly accomplished, to feel that they have this undiscovered greatness within them. You know, for me, it was a real shock, you know, because I was always smarter than everybody else and whatnot. But it was a real shock to encounter great writers like, um, Umberto Eco and Joseph Schumpeter, and realized that I was not in their league. It was very humbling. It was very good for me. It was, it was, it was one of the best things I think that probably ever happened to me. Um, but that's something that the, you know, the, how you react to the discovery that you're not as successful as you think you should be is, is a, is a key moment for any man or woman because, um, very few of us are as as successful as we would think we should be and and so at that moment do you know do you think okay i need to try harder and i need to work harder and and maybe i'll improve you know or do you retreat into this world of delusion where you are napoleon and everyone just doesn't realize it even though you're crawling around under a you know under some dead old lady's bet. <laughs> it is, um, yeah, it is a,
0: what's that old quote? I, I think it's from um, Withnail and I. Ah, oh, there comes a, a moment in every young man's life when he realizes he shall never play the Dane. <laughs> Can't never play Hamlet. And, um, I have yeah, known people like that. It, it, it is torture. And the other thing, too, is Fox, heaven forbid you get all the success that you dream of, that you imagine, that you want. That seems pretty toxic as well. I mean, it's very easy to go and uh, find books like Darkness uh, Visible, right, by William Styron. It's very easy to go and find the essay that the woman who wrote, um, um, uh, the, the woman who wrote uh, she's about a movie with Julia Roberts um, uh, about when she goes off on her spiritual quest and so on. Uh, and and eat, eat, pray, love. Eat, pray, love. I was thinking eat, drink, man, woman. But anyway, eat, pray, love. <laughs> and, and how terrible it was. She bought this big house. She decorated it all. And then she kind of hated it and ended up moving to a much smaller place. And all her friends, she gave them money to fulfill their projects, which destroyed the friendship because she felt like she was chasing after them to see if they were going to actually fill. So the success that people gain you can end up um like jk rowling right i mean talking about how wonderful it is to have migrants while staying as far as humanly possible away from any effects of migrancy from the third world and so on so even if you get the success that you all dream of it doesn't exactly make your uh make yourself a wonderful place it's something sting said about the police he said you know the best time was somewhere between the van and and the private plane um the van sucked the private plane sucked but right in the middle was something really cool and um the, the question, and, and I remember this from when I was uh, uh, younger, um, in my early 20s, I played Macbeth. Uh, and um, I remember sitting down with the director, who was a, an Iranian director, was a fantastic guy, very, very deep. And we spoke a lot about the play uh, before uh, I did it. And I just remember saying... I have a bit of a problem that Macbeth strides in at the beginning, having just hacked down 850 peasants who are probably unarmed for the sake of the king. And everyone's like, yay, Macbeth, good job, you're a hero. But then he stabs one king. Who's the guy who actually ordered him to kill all of these peasants? And that's like a terrible, terrible thing. Why doesn't he not sleep over the peasants? And this question between public and private crimes, to me, is very powerful. very, po- And it's touched on at times... In the book, and I remember reading it, thinking, "God, please, please, put the plug in the socket, make this connection." That one guy kills uh, a porn broker, a terrible, vicious, evil crime, but great men kill by the millions and are applauded for it. And this is the torture that occurs uh, in in the minds of the moralists that the private crime provokes great stress and anxiety and guilt and conscience. But the public crime produces adulation and biographies and statues. That, to me, is one of the horrifying divisions in morality that was one of its rotten centers that caused it to collapse under the weight of the Superman and the Darwinian absolutes.
1: Well, I I think that um, there's definitely a distinction between uh, the public and the private act in the sense that in terms of how it weighs on the conscience. Now, um, you know, I've never been in the military, um, so I've never, I've never killed anyone with state, uh, state sanction, but, uh, I grew up with men who did, you know, my, my grandfather was, uh, not mere, he was not merely a Marine. He was, he was called the Marines Marine by no less than the commandant in the Marine Corps himself. And, um, my uncle, uh, actually later, you know, became a commandant, um, and both of them had extensive combat experience, um, dating back to Guadalcanal. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about my grandfather was that I have never known a more cheerful man. Hmm. Um, I've never known a man who slept better. <laughs> you know, um, and and he did. You know, one of the last things that he told our family was he, he asked me to read his last words at his, at his funeral. And one of the things that he said, and I've, I've never known anyone who could crack up a bunch of people at his own funeral, but, uh, but he said, um, I just want to let everyone know how, how good it is to die at home uh, surrounded by loved ones instead of a bunch of screaming japs. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, I mean, here you've got all these people crying and stuff, and, and everyone just cracked up because they could all hear him saying this. And, and you know, and I know for a fact that however many Japanese and Koreans he had, and Chinese he had killed, it, it didn't weigh on his conscience because I think that that's part of the, you know, the, the, the sanction of the state is what takes the responsibility away from the individual soldier, um, you know, well, not just the state,
0: but um, I mean, the, the Nazis had the sanction of the state at the time. But after Nuremberg, there was considered to be the collective guilt of the Germans and so on. It's the it's it's your peers, it's history, it's the historians, it's the moralists. It's not, I mean, the state and everyone else for all time. Right, Sorry, but, go ahead. But
1: you're ta- but you're talking about two different things. We're talking about what actually um, affects the the personal sense of whether it's a crime or not. And so, you know, for example, it's not necessarily the state. You know, uh, in fourth generation war um you know the, the the group that is at war is not necessarily the state that's you know that's all uh, that is actually a construct but but the important thing is whether the individual personally feels a sense of responsibility for the act um you know for example um in ender's game when you know ender commits complete uh genocide and wipes out an entire race just about um we don't fault him for that because he didn't know. He thought he was playing a computer simulation. And so I think that the, um, it, it's a bit of a gradient in terms of we don't hold someone at all responsible when they, when they have no knowledge of their own act. You know, if if Rosalnikov had um, you know, been in a drunken stupor and then committed the same act, people would have held him less responsible, and he would probably hold himself less responsible too um and then you know when, when you have a sanctioned act the, the individual feels less responsibility and then when you have simply an act of private will then that's when the, the mo- then when people tend to feel the most guilt um and feel the most responsible for those things now i'm not saying you know obviously you can look at it from a, um from a uh, a moral perspective and say well the act is the act what difference does it make but and that's when we start getting into free will and and all that sort of thing but um but i think the most important argument against the superman idea um is the fact that if you accept that reasoning then how do you how do you deny that superman the ability to say that 2 is 37 <laughs> right. or that you know, if the Superman has the ability to transgress certain moralities, there's no reason, there's there's absolutely no defense, rationally, logically, against them being able to transgress anything else that can be described as a construct of any kind.
0: All right. In the essay that Raskolnikov wrote, which the policeman uh, Porfiry gets a hold of, and it's what leads him to really suspect that he's facing an ideological crime because Raskolnikov doesn't really do much with the money he gets gets a hold of and uh, it's an ideological crime a test of whether he is Napoleon or not which which he fails and when Raskolnikov is is talking he he, he really encapsulates one paragraph that I wanted to sort of talk about he says to the policeman who's bringing up this article he says i remember I maintain in my article that all, well legislators and leaders of men, such as Lysurgus, Solon, Mahomet, Napoleon, and so on, were all, without exception, criminals. From the very fact that making a new law, they transgressed the ancient one, handed down from their ancestors, and held sacred by the people. And they did not stop short at bloodshed, either, if that bloodshed, often of innocent persons fighting bravely in the defense of ancient law, were of use to their cause. It's remarkable, in fact, that the majority, indeed, of these benefactors and leaders of humanity were guilty of terrible carnage. Now, I don't know in the book, and whether Dostoevsky had a plan or was writing emotionally, it doesn't particularly matter. But I don't know if it's an argument to say no one should shed blood, or if he's saying no one who can't get away with it should shed blood. Did you see what I mean? Because he's pointing out that people shed blood in overturning existing traditions all the time and slaughter people who are nobly and bravely defending those prior traditions. What is that? What the hell is Dostoevsky saying? I mean, is is Shakespeare saying to Macbeth or to the audience through Macbeth, don't kill the king? Or is he saying don't kill? Is Dostoevsky saying... Don't kill anyone, in which case, why not write a book about the evils of Napoleon? Well, the problem is Napoleon didn't experience, I think, what he did as evil. Complete sociopath, complete monster, like Stalin, didn't revisit the scenes of his crimes. He didn't seem to be bothered in particular by what he'd done, the the deaths of millions of people. Chairman Mao, with his black teeth and weird sexual practices, didn't seem to be guilty. So what's he saying? This is the really frustrating thing I have, Fox, with moralists, is that they seem to be saying, well, if you're really morally sensitive, don't do wrong. It's like, okay, got it. Most morally sensitive people aren't going to do wrong. But what about the wrong that is done by people who are completely conscienceless monsters? How the fuck do we deal with those people?
1: well i mean it it's you deal with them in much the same way i mean once 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 they commit an act, you hold them accountable and and um and that's that i mean the the thing is you're really opening up a huge discussion i won't say a can of worms because i think <laughs> it's, it's i think it's actually a, a good and useful discussion um but I don't think that uh, – first of all, I think that there is uh, – it's important to distinguish between the idea of uh, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not murder. They're two different things. So they, I mean, they're in, literally in the Hebrew, they're, they're different words. And, and so I, I think that we have a tendency to um, try to draw a binary distinction that simply does not exist philosophically, and um, no, I don't think that I don't think that Dostoevsky is saying there there is no reason to ever kill. Um, uh, you know, the Bible itself says there's a time to there's a time to kill. Um, but it, it's very clear. You know, the whole "thou shalt not murder" is very very clear. And certainly as someone who was a Christian, Dostoevsky would be um, both uh, prone to maintaining that that important distinction between kill and murder, and, and that's why I think that he is definitely, can I mean, he's clearly condemning Ros- Roselnikov. But um, I think that with regards to, I, I mean, I don't think that he would have any trouble. What? whatsoever in condemning napoleon as a criminal Um, but you know that's a different story and and that's one that you know tolstoy paid a little bit more attention to Um, but to to name another great writer but um it's you know and again as a as a author yourself you understand that your your vision is is limited you know you're not going to address you're not going to address every issue and answer every question that your subject might raise.
0: Right, right. The other bit where he talks about this, um, which, and the, the reason I'm bringing this stuff up is, about, I first tried to read the book when I was 13, and I didn't get more than like, I don't know, 60 pages into it. No killing yet. I guess I'll move on. And then I read it. I read it straight. read it Where's straight. crime? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the punishment so far is that there is no crime, and I'm still reading. But um, uh, then I picked it up again. Um, I guess I was 20, and I read it straight through. I just didn't – overnight just didn't stop. And then I listened to the audiobook again more recently. And it had a lot to do with my sort of development as a thinker, as, as a moralist, and, and I guess as a writer and an artist as well this question of if you strip away the social structures, in like if you strip away things like the state, the army, you know, it's a question that everyone has when they're a kid, I mean, who's got any sort of sensitivity, right? I mean, you, you, you shoot a guy in peacetime, you get a prison cell. You shoot a guy in wartime, you get a medal. I mean, and a pension and a ticket tape parade and so on. And if you take away the uniforms, if you take away, like I can't go order people justly to go. I mean, that's right, subordinating some sort of crime or whatever, but if you get the particular uniform and the sanction of the, whatever it is. And so he exists in this bare world without structure, which The Origin of the Species, again, uh, Darwin's book published a few short years before Crime and Punishment, it takes away the rituals, right? It, it is DNA dominance game. That That's all that society becomes. And he can't see the structures. He can't see the... Um, the rituals anymore. It's just, it's a uniform. It's a costume, not a justification. So he's talking with a woman and and she says, aren't you half expiating your crime by facing the suffering? She cried, holding him close and kissing him. And Raskolnikov says, crime, what crime? And he's furious about this because he can't see it. He said, that I killed a vile, noxious insect, an old pawnbroker woman of use to no one. Killing her was atonement for 40 sins. She was sucking the life out of poor people. Was that a crime? I'm not thinking of it, and I'm not thinking of explaining it. And why are you all rubbing it in on all sides? A crime, a crime. Only now I see clearly the imbecility of my cowardice, now that I have decided to face this superfluous disgrace. It's simply because I am contemptible and have nothing in me that I have decided to... Perhaps two for my advantage is that Porphyry suggested and uh, the woman says, brother, brother, her sister, what are you saying? Why you have shed blood? And she's in despair because he can't see it. And he says, she says, have you, why have you shed blood? He says, which all men shed. He put in almost frantically, I'm not different than anyone. He says, the blood which flows and has always flowed in streams, which is spilt like champagne, and for which men are crowned in the capital and are called afterwards benefactors of mankind. Look into it more carefully and understand it. I too wanted to do good to men and would have done hundreds, thousands of good deeds to make up for that one piece of stupidity. He's talking about the murder. Not stupidity, even simply clumsiness. For the idea was by no means so stupid as it seems now that it has failed. Everything seems stupid when it fails. By that stupidity, I only wanted to put myself into an independent position, to take the first step to obtain means, then everything would have been smoothed over by benefits immeasurable in comparison. But I I couldn't carry out even the first step because I am contemptible. That's what's the matter. And yet I won't look at it as you do. If I had succeeded, I should have been crowned with glory. But now I'm trapped. And he says, but that's not so. Not so, brother. What are you saying? He says, ah, it's not picturesque, not, aesthetic, not aesthetically attractive. i f- I fail to understand why bombarding people by regular siege is more honorable, right? Having a war. They have a war to take resources. I killed a pawnbroker to take resources. What the fuck is the difference? He says, the fear of appearances is the first symptom of impotence. I've never, never recognized this more clearly than now, and I am further than ever from seeing that What I did was a crime. I've never, never been stronger and more convinced than now. He can't see past the rituals. He can't see past the structure. He can't see the moral universe, the moral landscape. It's just if you're stronger and you can take it, then take it. That's what kings do. That's what generals do. That's what robber barons do. That's what captains of industry do when they tweak the state to get beneficial legislation. That's what the state does when it takes money from you by force. Why can't I do it too? It's a great question. I'm not saying people should, you understand? It is, when you when you don't see the, when you look past and everything becomes the bare gun and the bare animal and the bare dominance and the bare resource transfer, why is it allowed to some who seem to have no conscience about it? And why is it denied to others who have this intellectual belief that it should be possible and noble for them, but they can't bring themselves to do it emotionally? It's a great question.
1: I think that the, the answer is to be found in his reasoning. You know, he was, for all that he was trying to dress it up, you know, I was, I would take those resources and do great things with it. Um, but really it was just about his immediate needs because he didn't, even when he did do it, he, you know, he did not do any, he did not. Take the, he did not take sufficient resources. He killed her, but he didn't take all the money. And what little he did take, he didn't really use. He, he did nothing great. You know, he 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 uh, helped out the drunkard's family. Um. So even by his own metric, he failed. It is one's genuine, true motivation that ultimately determines the morality of the act because we know some acts the the same act can be moral or immoral. Um, and we also know that simply throwing all morality out the window doesn't work. You know, it, it, it doesn't function for society. It doesn't function for individuals cannot function without it. Even if you, even if you, um, believe that, that, that morality is nothing but a construct it is a societal construct it is a necessary construct if you want to have society you know my, my argument uh for a number of different things including you know societal morality is i like indoor plumbing <laughs> okay i am willing i'm willing to accept all kinds of wh- whatever philosophical contortions we have to go through to make sure that we have indoor plumbing, I'm down with that. If that makes me shallow or whatever, that's fine. But I don't want to live in sewage. <laughs> and, and that is ultimately the end result of, of rejecting these various constructs that Roselnikov cannot see. Um, and so the, you know, just because we can't see something, you know, we can't see x-rays either. But it doesn't mean they're not real.
0: That, to me, is um, one of the great frustrations that I have about the 19th century, which makes me sound very Oscar wilde But nonetheless, it's a very, very important (laughs) thing. Oh, yes, one of the great frustrations I have.
1: I'm so bitter about 200 years ago. (laughs) No,
0: but seriously, I mean, it's kind of tough, right? I mean, I did a podcast many years ago where it's like, yeah, it'd be great if the Second World War never happened. But then I never would have been born. because
1: Anyway, so – but a, a lot, a true loss to the world. I'm sure we're all glad that it yeah, worked out. It, 40
0: million and- dead, me. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, right? It's not much of a comparison. But, um, but, but here's the thing when the will to power emerged, which had always been there, it was the will to power combined, like more secular non aristocrats began to gain power. And the argument, of course, is, has been used throughout history. Um, and I have a newfound respect, respect for religious morality that's developed over the last year or two. So take that in context of this part. But the old argument was God's on the side of the winner, right? So if Napoleon wins and becomes emperor of France, it's clearly because he has a divine power behind him, and therefore what he does is sanctioned by, uh, by God. And so there was a way of explaining the will to power, not as the will of an individual human being, right, the bare-forked animal, the biological reproduction machine that seeks resources and dominance and sexuality and reproduction, the Genghis Khan seed sprayer of evolution. It was sanctioned by the divine, and therefore there was a moral element to it. It was for the betterment of the world, the moving forward of the world spirit, whatever you want to call it. But when you have these adventurers, right, from Napoleon to Hitler to all of the people that were mentioned in uh, Raskolnikov's essay and so on, when you have this will to power combined with the emptying out of divine improvement that came about partly as a result of rationalism and scientism and, and Darwinianism and so on, then you have a problem. And the problem is the will to power is now biological not moral. And this is what is going on here and this, you know, we'll get to the welfare state in a sec, which I think you can make an argument is is sort of buried into this kind of stuff as well. So to me, when the divine justifications for the pyramid of power within society fell away, which I think arguably they did. I mean, in the 19th century, there was strong atheism and there was arguments that were made that mankind's in danger of being laughed out of religion and so on. So, okay, that fell away then surely the alarm bell should have gone off in everyone's mind and said, ooh, shit, we just lost a central support of what the hell makes society society. It just, poof, it just fell away, you know? Like the, 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 the load-bearing wall, is a big giant crack in it and it's creaking and everything. Then surely everyone should have rushed and said, okay, man, we have better figure out what the hell objective ethics means if Darwinism... Is, is valid as a fact. And I am forever pissed and will go to my grave pissed that moralists did not do that. They turned to bullshit like pragmatism, uh, consequentialism. Uh, they turned to the, you know, sort of um, Hobbes- well, Hobbesian will to power and, and Humean skepticism. I know that that was earlier and so on, but they just turned to bullshit like the greatest good for the greatest number. Yeah, that you want to get your fucking philosophy from a Vulcan, but, but it is... They just said, okay, let's just do this consequentialism. What's going to make the most people the most happy? Let's do some bullshit calculus about that. That's all relativism because happiness is subjective and who knows – who who the hell can can achieve it on any consistent basis for any group except at the – it destroyed universalism. And the fact that philosophers did not work their goddamn asses off to try and resurrect some kind of universalism in the absence of divine sanction of secular power – to me, it was one of the great tragedies that literally led to the deaths of hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, which we're still struggling with today. As you were talking earlier, thinking about well, you can then everything becomes relative. Now in the US there are sororities who are facing big problems because men want to join them.
1: And that's the and that's the rational outcome.
0: It is. Except if you can work on universalism. So I've been busting my butt for years working on universalism. I've got a whole book on universally preferable behavior, a rational proof of secular ethics, where I'm trying to put that support back up in society. Let's say that we are post-Christian ethics. I don't know if we can go back. I love a lot of the Christian ethics. I'm down with a good chunk of the Ten Commandments. But this is the only job we have right now, which is to try and find a way to get universalism back philosophically speaking. I don't know if we can go back or what's going to happen there. I mean, some people say go back to Christianity. I've had guests on saying go back to the ancient Norse gods. I don't know how practical a plan that is. <laughs> low-key, not. Well, low-key has been
1: fairly low-key for, for for quite a while.
0: So I, 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 that's say, not even a question in that. I just wanted to get, get your thoughts on
1: that rant. Well, the, the first thing that, that is, is that I'm, I am amused by the um, – The folks that want to go back to paganism, especially like Norse paganism, because if you've actually read the history of the Vikings um, and you know a little bit about what that religion entailed, um, you would want to stay very, very, very far (laughs) away from it. Um, Although I have to say the whole uh, I mean, any any religion where the funeral rites include gang rape. Um, is probably going to be popular with some people. Do you know, given that um, my,
0: uh, ha- my ancestry is half Irish, just every time we hear the word Vikings, it's like, what, where, what, hit him with
1: <laughs> a rock, run, <laughs> hide, bury yourself.
0: Okay, sorry, go ahead.
1: But, but um, I, I mean, you know, this is, this is the inevitable problem. It, when, when I wrote my book, uh, The Irrational Atheist, uh, some people who hadn't read it, reacted very badly to it because they thought that I was saying that atheism is irrational. And I, I, I had to correct them and say, no, I'm saying precisely the opposite. I like irrational atheists because they're moral parasites. They, they, they're the ones who uh, cling to the moral inertia of post-Christianity. I said, the ones who scare me are the rational atheists because they're the ones who you know take it to the who, who quite rationally take that um, lack of universalism that you talk about and and take it so, to some very dark places as well as some very silly places as we're increasing you know we've seen the dark places in the 20th century and thus far we're seeing the very very silly places in the 21st century um, in terms of your uh, your desire to you know create some sort of universalist Post Christian ethics. Um, my first thought is I, I, I salute you in those <laughs> efforts. Um, I, I, you I know, wish, if you could I just wish... stay
0: with your first thought, I'm sure the rest of this conversation would go swimmingly for me. So well, I'm afraid we're <laughs> running out of time. Let's not get to a second. No, go ahead.
1: No, I mean, honestly, um, I, I think it's a fascinating exercise. Um, and I suspect that it is uh, ultimately a doomed one because. I think that um, I think that you ultimately need an objective outside boundary being applied, even if even even if there is no outside. Hmm. It, it, people have to accept that it is non-subjective. People have to. I would actually, given how humans are. I think that humans actually ha- would have to accept that it is imposed upon them by an, an outside force. So aliens might work. You know, uh, <laughs> you don't necessarily. It, it, actually, seriously, if you're working on a universalism, I would suggest that you remove the emotional content by positing a morality imposed by alien conquerors rather than opening up everybody's. You know, everybody's uh, angst over their bad relationship with their father when they were five years old, um, which you know tends to crop in whenever you start talking about a universal daddy. Um, the uh, which, by the way, is a great song by Alphaville. Um, <laughs>
0: but um, they're forever young guys,
1: right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's hilarious because they're German, and the same way that, like, they say "und" when in "forever young." Uh, for some reason, nobody ever told them that you say a universal so everything is n universal (laughs) I just find it amusing not a big deal Um, totally trivial tangent there but the point is that um, if you're trying to erect this um, universal objective morality that can be applied to everyone you're going to end up with something that is going to look very much like these traditional religious moralities. Um, and, and because you are a civilized uh, son of Christendom, the chances are very good that you're going to end up with something that looks very much like Christian morality as colored by its uh, pragmatic contact with the real world. There's a reason why, you know, why uh, Augustine wrote about you know, just war. Um, there's a reason why Aquinas spent a fair amount of time dealing with reasonably practical manners, not just purely theoretical ones. Um, but you know, I, I think it, I think it is, uh, it's a wor- it's, it's a worthy endeavor for a, uh, high level intellect like yourself.
0: Hmm. I just have to tell you that I know you write a lot of sci-fi and so on space space farmers still not an argument but the problem is that i have when this has been my big heartbreak with regards to the atheist community it sounds like we're not talking about Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, but we kind of are which is um <laughs> i remember yes, this is are. way way back in the day when i had um when i, I sort of mentioned to a bunch of atheists uh, that this is on a message board or like kind of some sort of Usenet thing or whatever i mentioned to a bunch of atheists just in passing yeah well of course the state doesn't exist right and What came firing back to me was pictures of the Capitol and pictures of the Pentagon and so on. It's like, well, the buildings exist, I'll grant you that, but that doesn't mean that the concept exists in the world. That's like saying God exists because I showed you a picture of a church, right? I mean, so this um, relentless avoidance of universalism that seems to be in atheist communities, and I'm plowing my way through the moral landscape by Sam Harris, which is very – well-written, and and I appreciate that he likes universalism as an abstract, but I'm still waiting for the the, the proof of it. Anyway, sort of early days in the book. But um, uh, the atheists as a whole, I thought that they would be like, oh, thank God, so to speak, you, you, you've come up with something, uh, a really strong proof of universal ethics. But the problem is that because atheists tend to flock towards... God, any universalist ethics like Christianity or what I work on that delegitimizes certain aspects of state power seems to be like silver bullets into the hides of <laughs> the werewolf skin of, of atheists. It's like sunlight to a vampire. It's like, well, we like your universalism because you know ethics are a good thing to have, but man, if it interferes with the power of the state, I'm afraid we're just going to have to step one side or the other, because you kind of come across, because religion, Christianity in particular, does limit the power of the state for reasons that we've, we've talked about before. And so for me, when atheists had to choose between universal ethics and the power of the state, they seemed, almost universally, to flock towards the power of the state and away from universalism. So the idea, to me, of secular ethics uh, has to some degree been left uh, in the dust and uh, in the emergency that is currently facing Western civilization, um, everybody who's keen on limiting the size and power of the state. And by that, I'm talking in particular the welfare state, which is, I think, the real fundamental undoing of Western civilization, as it has been before with the Roman Empire and other places. Um, that, to me, is where the boon companions lie, not in the atheist community, which is still flocking towards whatever they can do to, to boost the size and power of the state, which means that atheism is... Um, creating a, a giant farm of useful idiots to pump up state power. It's not a rational, consistent ideology that I found in general whatsoever. And the last thing, well, there's two, two other things I wanted to mention. The first, first of all, and this, I, I, I don't, I sort of, before we got into the conversation, I sort of looked myself sternly in the mirror and said, are you trying to jam one of your sort of, quote, pet peeves into a, a novel, which obviously the novel is multidimensional enough to take, but I wanted to make sure that it was fair. But there is a communist principle to me, in the basis of this approach. This is sort of will to power and so on. And the principle is from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Now, there is need on the part of Raskolnikov. He needs money. And you could argue, at least from his perspective, his sister needs money to avoid this disastrous marriage. And and Sonia's family, the prostitute who ends up becoming his wife, uh, she, uh, her family needs money because the father, Mama Ladov, is such a horrifying and horrible drunk that they have nothing to eat. There are children who are starving. And so the mother is the one who convinces this sensitive and shy young girl to go out and become a prostitute. So he could conceivably do far better good with the money than the hoarding, greasy-haired, old, vile, spider, insect, horrible pornbroker broker woman, and so on. And so this idea that the transfer, which, which he makes this case repeatedly, he says, it is better for me to have the money and do good than for this woman to hoard it and prey upon the poor. Uh, It is unjust for her to have this money because I can do more good with the money. I can make a better world out of the resources that she currently has. And this to me is one of the fundamental foundations. Let me repeat myself three more times with fundamental foundations. But this is one of the basis of the welfare state, that the state should, through coercion, take money from people they feel are not using it to maximize social happiness and then redistribute it in a way that maximizes social happiness or healthcare with Obamacare or socialized medicine or education through the state or whatever you want to call it. There's this idea that need, aesthetic preference, moral arguments, maximum happiness surmount and overcome basic principles of private property. Now, this was not a complex argument throughout most of human history, right? I mean, as people have pointed out before, Sweden existed for 800 years with no welfare state. It had charity in the form of religiosity and and kindness, which, of course, was the real kindness, because it was both voluntary and effective. And then you get the welfare state. And then the welfare state is a giant magnet for third-world migrants, and and, with the whole argument I've made before. But this idea that resources within society can be coercively manipulated and redistributed to maximize happiness within society, I see this occurring very powerfully deep in this uh, novel. And Christianity, of course, uh, opposed that fundamental idea, because once you make something coercive, it can no longer have any moral content. And so the state forcing you to give to the poor strips free will from both parties, from the rich and the poor or the middle class. And it strips, because it strips free will, it strips the ethics of it, you may end up putting food in the bellies of the poor, but you end up stripping people of the path to heaven because they don't get to voluntarily assign their resources based on kindness and Christian charity to the poor. So this idea that we should use coercion to redistribute resources to maximize happiness, which has been the great curse of the um, post nineteenth century um, civilization in in the West, started off in education, and spread to everywhere else as these things tend to do. To me, is is buried deep inside. This And he makes a very strong case for the redistribution of resources. It's the old thing, like, if you just overcome the actual killing part, which is the coercion, but of course, you know, people get locked up. For not paying their taxes, and then they get raped or killed in prison. Like the redistribution of income comes at an enormously heavy price, uh, and sometimes that price is in is in blood uh, uh running down the floor and washing away in the water of a prison shower. I mean, the, the, it is a violent, coercive action to redistribute resources to that degree. And I think that the essence of it does exist in this. And I did a podcast recently, which is. You know, by the by, just atheists have a much more difficult time looking at human suffering than Christians do, because for Christians, the suffering is part and parcel of the whole deal, and suffering has a very positive element to it. And of course, in Dostoevsky's novel, the fact that he refuses to suffer, that he continues to justify what he did, that he, he actually condemns himself for not being noble or strong enough to flourish from murdering someone, uh, which is complete opposite perspective perspective that a Christian would have. The fact that he avoids suffering is so foundational. To why he is such a bad person in the book, and the welfare state can't stand like the, the atheist can't stand to look at suffering, uh, but Christians embrace it as part of the human condition and a necessary part path of purification. And I think his sensitivity—I I, can't—I can't suffer myself. My sister can't suffer, so I'm going to do whatever it takes to end this suffering. And this woman's suffering will be ending when she's died anyway. So I think that this addiction to coercion to fix problems of, of poverty or shortage of resources for certain groups, I think is kind of embedded in there, and it seems to have erupted in the 19th century with the fall of Christian ethics.
1: Well, I think that Dostoevsky actually makes a very prescient point with the outcome, because you know, the argument is, as you say, but the response that Dostoevsky has to it is that for, is, is actually has a perfect analog to the real world, which is it doesn't work. You know, you can, he can make this argument all he wants, but the reality is, is that after he commits the act and, and, and can justify it, he then fails his part of the bargain. And that's exactly what happens with the welfare state. The welfare state does not increase net happiness. The welfare state impoverishes everyone you know, the welfare state actually, in some cases, if, if you tie it to immigration and so forth, the welfare state not only reduces societal happiness, it puts the existence of society itself at risk. I mean, you know, you don't need to um, convince me of the coercive aspect of it. Um, my father is in prison for 46 more months um, over, over US tax stuff. And so, but here's the important thing about suffering is that um you know yes suffering is something that that we, we we don't want to experience um but it is always true that there is some sort of silver lining it you know it was it was interesting to me that that uh, my father told me that he was more respected and treated better in prison than he ever had been as the wealthy ceo of a technology company I mean that that was kind of remarkable. But what what he's spent his time doing is he gets wrongly convicted prisoners out of prison. He's um, I think the last time he had added it up, he had helped uh, people get out of eleven hundred years cum- cumulative of of prison that they were already in prison for, going to serve but on the basis of you know bad convictions and that sort of thing. So you know is. Did he ruin his life by going to prison? I think it's hard to make that case. Um, you know, despite the fact that you or I, looking at it ahead of time, would have said, "Oh, you know, what a, what a what a terrible thing! What a horrible mistake! This is this is just going to be pure suffering. No good can possibly come of it." And yet, I, I'm not even I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure my father would decide to do things very differently, if possible but i don't think that that he he would think for a second he would think that 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 even he would say that no good has come of it mm, and right. so um you know and you know yes that may and even from a non christian perspective and so um now i personally would like to avoid as much uh suffering physical and emotional as anyone else um but it is helpful i think to understand that um, sometimes the cost of avoiding suffering can actually be worse.
0: Right. Well, I, I think that is definitely, uh, definitely true. And, and certainly in any clash between cultures, those more willing to embrace suffering will win, I, I think almost without, without a doubt. So the last thing I wanted to mention, and this is a, um, a very, very short quote from the book, when Raskolnikov is talking about why he did what he did or what his thoughts are about killing. He says, the old woman was a mistake, perhaps, but she's not the point. The old woman was merely a sickness. I was in a in a hurry to step over. It wasn't a human being I killed. It was a principle. So I killed the principal, but I didn't step over. I stayed on this side. All I managed to do was kill. And I, I didn't even manage that as it turned out. And again, a lot of what Dostoevsky writes as Raskolnikov's words and his thoughts is, is very confused. And, very, and I don't know if that had to do with censorship or, you know, how close artists can get to really, really explosive issues. But um, this idea that you can create a category of people and then kill everyone in that category without killing people because you're just destroying the principle, to me, was one of the fundamental underpinnings of Totalitarianism in the 20th century, and I guess even even now. So you have categories wherein you can dismiss the content of people in those categories. You know, you will see this uh, uh, Marine Le Pen, extreme right wing, because no one's ever described as extreme left wing, even though they're far more extreme than anyone on the right, because they're out there in black clothing beating people up and so on. <clears throat> but you can create a category, a basket of deplorables, or much more aggressively in in Soviet times, counter-revolutionary forces. you got this category, counter-revolutionary forces, whoever is in that category, or Kulak, rich peasant, or bourgeois, and you can just put people in this category. Once they're in that category, they're dehumanized, they're your enemy, they're predator and your prey, or vice versa. You can do anything you want to people in that category. And this, to me, is one of the great terrifying things that's happening in the West at the moment is the emergence of these categories. Now, Christianity, I don't think, falls into this particular problem at all. Because, of course, there are non-believers in Christianity, but they're just, you know, that old thing, I there are no strangers, there are only friends I haven't met yet. Well, there are no non-Christians, there are just converts I haven't met yet. And this idea that you can't put people into categories because of the individuation of the soul and the universe within the soul that yearns to to reach heaven and to achieve a oneness with God and so on. There aren't particular categories, but in the Darwinian world, it's so easy. And I don't know exactly why. Maybe I haven't thought this, so maybe I'm making no sense at all. But it seems so very, very easy, Vox. For people to create, and that this is obsession on the left with the other, the other who you can dehumanize. And it's like, well, of course there is, because it's all you people do. is create these categories which you can then dehumanize and call in the airstrikes of either social opprobrium or literal physical destruction or or incarceration or putting them in camps or whatever. You're a counter-revolutionary. You're a a disturbing force in society. and, And therefore, I can do anything I want to you and consider myself justified. This creation of categories, right? He says here. It wasn't a human being I killed, it was a principle, that principle being exploitation or lack of social utility or being in the category of of insects, this dehumanization that occurs of, of enemies. I don't know what it is, but since the fall of Christianity or since the step back of Christianity in a lot of the West, less so in America, there has been this growing addiction to creating these categories of dehumanization Wherein you know you can punch so and so because he's a Nazi and you can call someone a Nazi, and then it's well, you've got this category, and once you have this category, everyone in it is fair game, and that to me not only is it not an argument but it's a very very slippery slope
1: well i i I think it's a I think it's a fatal slope for the left I mean you know if you saw the i don't know if you saw the pictures from the Huntington beach rally, but um you know. Trump supporters were making mincemeat of the black block folks. And, and, uh, I think it's a very dangerous game to play this other ring, um, where there's no possibility of transformation. Um, uh, you know, the, um, you know, we, I, I think that, uh, I mean, that's why, for example, Franco was always so vilified was because he was counterrevolutionary, and and worst of all, he was a successful counterrevolutionary. You know, no, nothing frightens them like Franco and Pinochet. Um, you know, and and it, and it's it's. Imp- I think that the the left um, and that totalitarian mentality that you describe has a, a fatal weakness in it. Um, not just not just a, a practical weakness, not just the many philosophical and logical weaknesses um but the practical weakness is uh you know never leave a rat without an escape route you know because if you're gonna corner a rat a person a people they're going to fight back and and i think that that is the um I think that is the fundamental error of the left is once you know, once you've been othered, you have there's there's no reason for you to do anything but fight. And and once they declare no quarter, there's no reason for you to spare them. And and um and I, I think that it's a it's a tragic thing. It's a foolish thing. And yet you know what choice do we have once they've declared once they've said there's no place for you in our society you know the only possible response that we can have is you know you can't run, you can't hide, you get helicopter ride i mean there's <laughs> we we can't negotiate with them because they have they have declared that we are deplorably non negotiables and and so um what we're seeing is Literally, a breakdown of civilization.
0: Right. Well, that's why I've been working so hard on this book, which um, I still think that there may be a chance to win through words and uh, when I give that up, I'll step aside and observe with horror what comes next so i've just wanted to remind people about uh, vox's uh uh, very fascinating and great work uh we'll put links to all of his stuff below you really really want to check out um social justice warriors always lie taking down the thought police and conservative how conservatives betrayed america and and his collected columns here we go his collected columns now with hair innocence and (laughs) intellect 2001 to 2005 well worth your time to peruse uh thanks a lot for a great chat please everyone Get a hold of Crime and Punishment. You can find it on EPUB. On, it's, it's available. It's, it's, of course, you know public domain now and all that. You can find it in text. It's a great version of it on Audible uh, in audiobook format. Go get it. Listen to it. Read it. Think about it. Absorb it. It's powerful stuff. It's important stuff. I hate to say it's more relevant now than ever because it sounds like a cliche. But, hey, it's more relevant now than ever. I'm still going to stick by that. And don't forget to check out Vox Populi and Alpha Game Vox's blogs. Thanks much, brother. Great pleasure chatting. I'm sure we'll talk again soon.
1: Always good to talk to you.